Brilliant. So you're off to university, Megan, is that right? Yes. Okay. We are going to miss you. We're going to miss all any of you other guys who are off to university. God bless you. We'll no doubt see you again. Christmas, holidays, etc., etc. You can tell us how everything's going. Okay, this morning we are looking at um, uh, Romans, and we are this term looking at growing and strengthening a culture of mission in the church. And to do that, we're going to go through the book of Romans. And uh, as you'll see from your notes there, we're going to go through it in chunks. Salvation needed, salvation given, salvation experienced, salvation maintained, salvation lived out, salvation advancing. And even though we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at most of those headings, we're never going to get through everything that Romans says about those topics, let alone what Romans says overall. So what would be really helpful is if you are reading in the weeks uh, the chapters that we're going to be preaching on uh, week by week. That would be really helpful because we're really just going to focus on those things uh, as they pertain to this subject of a culture of mission. And so this morning we're going to cover salvation needed in one session, which is a bit crazy. But last week I really wanted to concentrate on this idea of a person of peace. And that's because that's really about the practical outworking of mission and evangelism. And it's no good just filling our heads with great and wonderful truths about salvation if we're not actually going to try and get out there and reach those people who are not saved. There's no point just having a load of theory. Which is why I think Naomi's testimony was so fantastic. Because actually she takes the theory and tried to put it in practice. She got a bit wrong and then she got a bit right and then she got a bit wrong and then God helped her and then she didn't know what to do and then Neil, da-da, why Jesus? That's, 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 that's how it really is. And so I think that's wonderful. But what it means is that if you weren't here last week, then I really want to encourage you to go on the website and have a listen. Not because last week was anything particularly special, but because I spoke about this idea of a person of peace, spoke about seven Ps of witnessing, and it would be really helpful if everyone in the church had some understanding of what uh, we meant when we spoke about them. We're going to revisit them, this term. We're going to keep on encouraging us all to think about them, so it would be really helpful if everybody had heard that message. So this morning we're going to look at salvation needed. We're going to do it from the first three chapters of Romans. And uh, as you know, this letter to the church in Rome, which is obviously called Romans in our Bibles, and we're going to look at it under three questions. We're going to kind of look at it under three chunks, and it's kind of going to look at it under three questions. And the three questions are really this, what was Rome like? 30 odd years after Jesus had been crucified, what was Rome like? What was the city like, the place to where this letter was sent? And then secondly, what was the church in Rome like? What was this early church like, the people to whom the letter was sent? And then we're going to look at, well, what was the problem? Why was Paul writing this letter to them? The letters in the Bible are not just written like an instruction manual. They're written to real churches in real life, grappling with real issues. So if we're going to understand it, we need to understand what the problem was and what the result was. And so we're going to do that and we're going to look at three chunks of Romans as we kind of go through. So let me pray. Father, I pray that this morning you would open up our ears, you would open up our hearts to what it is that you want to say to us and that we would all be taught by you and by your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so what was Rome like? If we're going to understand this letter, we're going to understand what it can teach us about salvation and mission, we have to understand something about the time and the place to which it was sent. So the Apostle Paul, who was in the church in Corinth, sent this letter to the church in Rome in around eight, in the spring of AD 57. So, you know, what's that? About 34 years after Jesus had been resurrected. That's the kind of time we're talking about. And this letter was as dangerous for all concerned as throwing a lighted match into a room of gunpowder. This was not a postcard. This was not a little card of encouragement. This was not a kind of, here's a few blessed thoughts about how you can do church a bit nicer. This letter was dynamite. This letter was dangerous. You see, Rome itself was a city built by a murderer on the corpse of his rivals. And 10 years later, Paul, who wrote this letter, is going to be added to that pile of corpses murdered, in effect, for writing it. You see, this is the Roman Empire, and we're in the time of Emperor Nero, who came to the throne in AD 54, three years before this letter was written, when his mother poisoned his stepfather, the Emperor Claudius, when she heard that Claudius was going to disinherit her son Nero, who was 16. So she had the court officials poison Emperor Claudius. So there's definitely a candidate for both a parenting and a marriage course there, if ever I saw one. And Emperor Nero at 16, having come to the throne by murder, he decided that he was going to make murder a hallmark of it. Within weeks, he poisoned his own stepbrother because he was a risk. Over the coming years, he poisoned his mother, the one who has poisoned his stepfather to get in the throne, two of his wives, many of his nobles, lots of his initial, uh, officials, and basically anyone who stood in his way threatened him or in any way thought they might threaten him. Nero's answer to them was to murder them. Anyone who threatened his place as the king, he murdered. And yet Paul writes to the Christians in Rome that there's only one true king, but it isn't Nero, it's Jesus. So let's read the first chunk, Romans 1, 1 to 17. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
You may not realize it, but the very words that Paul uses would have had a very incendiary and obvious meaning to those who heard it. This word that he uses, the Greek word gospel, is a, is a technical word that actually the Caesars would have used when they wanted to proclaim some great thing that had happened. So if there was a birth of a son and heir, if they'd won a great battle uh, in the field, they would get their um, people to go out and proclaim it through the Roman emperor, uh, empire, the gospel of the birth of Julius, the gospel, the good news of the birth of Nero, the gospel of the great battle we just won in Gaul or in Britain or somewhere else. And yet Paul uses the same word and declares that the real good news, the real gospel, is nothing to do with the Caesars or the expansion of the Roman Empire. He says it's the gospel of God, the good news of God regarding his son. He's saying to them, listen, don't listen to Nero. There's a new king in town. And then he uses this word kurios, which is translated Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word Lord or kurios. That was the same word that the Roman emperors used of themselves. They referred to themselves as kurios or Lord. But then Paul uses that very same word to describe the reign of a new kurios, a new Lord, Jesus Christ. And then we see he uses this word Christ or Messiah, which is the Words from the Old Testament that someone was going to come, David's heir. And when the Messiah came, David's heir came, God's throne would be established on earth and it would last forever. And Paul now announces this Messiah, this Christ that was spoken of through the Old Testament. It's come. He's come. And it's Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth. We've got to understand, if we're going to understand how incendiary this letter is, that he's telling the Romans that there's a new king in town and it's not Emperor Nero, it is King Jesus. I just think it's so hard for us to grasp just how dangerous this letter is. But remember, Jesus himself was dragged before a Roman judge and he was charged that he opposes taxes and claims to be Christ a king. That's what they nailed him on. They pulled him before the Romans and says, this man claims to be a king and there's only one king. And it's Caesar. When the Roman judge hesitated in passing sentence on Jesus, because there was no evidence that he'd done anything wrong, the Bible says that Jesus' enemies reminded the judge, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. The sign that the Roman soldiers hung above Jesus' head as they hung him on the cross was king of the Jews. And now, Paul writes a letter that claims that God has raised this same Jesus that you falsely tried, stuck on a cross. He called himself the king of the Jews. He dared to call himself a king. Where we know that Caesar is king. And Paul says this same Jesus, God has raised back to life and he's now the Lord and king of the universe. How do you think the Romans felt about that? You see, Nero and his ambassadors, they did not travel around the empire encouraging the Roman subjects to enjoy the benefits and experience the benefits and grace of choosing Emperor Nero as their lord and king. 
That's not how the Romans did it. They simply announced everywhere they went that Nero was the Lord and the King and no matter what any subjects anywhere in the Roman world thought, they needed to submit to him or be killed. And yet Paul sends this letter right into Nero's backyard proclaiming that Jesus Christ was their Lord and King and you need to surrender to him and not Nero. We've just got to get how we can read Romans saying, oh, that's nice, what a jolly nice letter. Listen, it's not a jolly nice letter. Okay, this is, is, this is political dynamite. This is stuff that people get killed for. Before we move on, just note that the gospel isn't primarily personal. I mean, it isn't primarily about sin or righteousness or justification or the role of Israel. Paul states right at the beginning, it's the gospel of God regarding his son. Many people think about or reduce the gospel down to a formula, something like this. Sin plus the cross plus repentance equals salvation or justification. That's how people think about it. Sin, Jesus came on the cross, we say sorry, repentance, he gives us salvation. And that's right, but you know, you can't reduce the gospel down to a formula. That is just a process for describing how salvation happens, and it's part of the gospel. But Paul wants us to know, so he emphasizes it, the gospel is about a man who is both a man and God, Jesus Christ. We are not called to respond to the gospel by following a formula. We are called to respond to the gospel by following a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a new king in town. His name is Jesus. He is the true Lord and King. Not Nero, not any other human ruler or king. And the question of the gospel is how are you and I and others going to respond to him? And Paul says in answer to that, you know, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I am not ashamed of this gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First the Jew and then the Gentile. In other words, it reveals a way that men and women can get right with God through faith in this one true Lord and King. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. Let's move on. Let's think about what was the church in Rome like? We've spoken a bit about what Rome was like. Let's have a think about this Christian church in Rome, who this letter was written to. The church in Rome had started when some of the Jews in that city got saved. And even though there would have been some Gentile converts, the flavor of the church was largely Jewish because the majority of people who got saved in Rome in the early days would have been Jews who converted to Christianity. It took the apostles 10 years before they really started preaching the gospel to Gentiles. It took another 10 years before they really started to do it wholesale and wholeheartedly. And yet in, so the makeup of this church was largely Jews who had been saved. But in AD 49, Emperor Claudius, before he got poisoned, decided to exile Rome's 40,000 Jews. He kicked them out of the city. And so the membership and leadership of this church in Rome basically became primarily Gentile, non-Jewish, overnight. And yet five years later, when Claudius died, Nero 
because of the terrible effect that kicking the Jews out had had on the economy, he asked all the Jews who had been kicked out, 40,000 of them, to return. And many of those would have been the Christian Jews who had been saved. And so they obviously went back to the church, which they started five years before. But of course, it didn't take long before there were conflicts between these returning Jewish founding father and mother Christians and these Gentile Christians who had been running and leading and making up the church for the five years while these Jewish Christians had been away. And you've got to remember the Gentile Christians came from a, um, a culture that absolutely hated the Jews. Gentiles and Jews hated each other. And in the Jewish culture, the Jews were the, the Gentiles were unclean. They, they, it was a crime for the Jews to even associate with the Gentiles. So you put those two groups together into one church, one having founded it and one having largely run it for the last five years. You put them in the same church with all their um, cultural differences and hatred of each other. Imagine the conflicts that were going on within the church itself. And we have to understand something of that history and culture between Jew and Gentile. That even though they become Christians, they are struggling. They are finding it so difficult to work out their faith together in one church. Because for all of their upbringing, they've been taught that actually they should be hating one another. But you know, Paul doesn't try to solve this problem by a kind of advanced course in racial awareness or race relations. He sticks to the message. There's a new king in town. His name is Jesus, and he's the Lord of both of you. And he expects his gospel to make a loving, genuinely multicultural church in this city. And it's fascinating how he does that. So he's writing this letter to this church that's in conflict. These two groups that hate each other. And so Paul writes this letter into it. And the way he does it is by telling them, you've got far bigger problems than your racial differences. You've got far bigger problems than the conflicts. You have an enemy that is more dangerous than one another. Because the fact is this, both Jew and Gentile alike have rebelled against the fact that Jesus is Lord and King. And because of that, God himself has become your enemy. That's in essence what he tells them. He doesn't say to them, come on, let's think about, let's learn differences. Let's learn what Jews are like. Let's learn what Gentiles are like. He says, no, no, there's a new king in town. You both need to bow your knee to him. That's, what he, that's how he kind of begins. So what was the problem? Well, the problem was, Paul says, that they, the people in the city... Mankind in general, men and women across the world, down through the ages, including us today, have become enemies of God. And consequently, God's righteous anger or his wrath is now being directed against us. Let's read the second chunk, Romans 1, 18, 32. Paul goes on to say, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what was made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received in themselves the due, due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not be done. They're filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul graphically describes for them the wickedness of the unbelieving, godless culture that they have been brought up and are living in. And let's be honest, that culture doesn't sound very different than the culture we are living in today, does it? Doesn't sound a million miles away. And Paul says, look, God is rightly angry with men and women because they've turned away from him, even though it's absolutely plain to them that he created them. Even those who have never heard anyone explain to them about God, they know he's real because his handiwork, his fingerprints are evident for all to see in creation, in nature, in how the world holds together and functions. And yet, Paul says, every person has failed to glorify God, to recognize him as God, to honor him, to thank him. In fact, mankind as a whole decided they would rather swap the wonder of knowing and being loved by an immortal God for making up images and statues of birds and and reptiles and people. They went out and instead of worshipping the God who made them and was so evident to them, they would rather go and fashion a God made out of a bit of mud and bow down and worship that. That's what Paul's saying. He says, mankind completely rejected God who was made and provided and was plain and obvious to them because, 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 because they didn't want to be subject to him. They didn't want to love him. They didn't want to serve him. And so they made gods out of their own image, out of their own imaginations, out of their own minds. They made gods made of wood and stone, unable to speak or act. But what it meant was that men and women could have God on their own terms. 
Men and women could still be Lord and King of their lives because the gods that they made, they would make up and they would have no pull on what individuals wanted. And rightly angered by this, Paul says, God gave them over three times. He says God gave them over to their sinful desires and shameful lusts. In other words, in essence, God says this, okay? Mankind... If you do not want to live under me and by my good rules, then you can live by your own rules. You can live by your own made-up gods. Let's see what kind of society is produced when it's able and allowed to come out of the hearts and minds of men and women. And what came out was that men started to lust after men and women after women, when God had made men to be attracted to women, women to be attracted to men. What flourished, Paul says, was wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. People didn't get nicer. They got horrible. They were full of envy, full of murder, full of deceit, full of malice. Mankind, devoid of God's moral code and so allowed to make up their own moral code, didn't lead to fairness and equality and freedom. It led to a world of gossips, slanderers, insolence, and arrogance. Paul says it led to a world where people invent new ways of doing evil, are disobedient across the generations. He says they're without understanding for one another, no faithfulness, no love, no mercy. Just imagine a world like that. John Lennon wrote that song that makes me want to physically smash the radio every time it comes on. Because he sings about, imagine a world without heaven, no religion. It's going to be wonderful and peaceful without poverty and without war. In reality, Paul says, it comes like a living hell. Becomes like a nightmare. That was the world that men and women created when they decided to turn away from God and stop honouring him as Lord and King. And Paul says that God's anger, his righteous, understandable, completely justified anger is against all humanity, including those in Rome, including those in the church in Rome, including Jew or Gentile. And Paul says, do you know what? That's a far bigger issue for you Christians in Rome than whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Paul really goes in for the kill here. He wants them to understand just how much they owe God in their very salvation. And Paul goes on in Romans to say, do you know what? The problem that mankind has doesn't lie in legalism or moralism. He goes on to explain, you can't solve this by trying to be justified before God by your own works. Because if you did that, you'd be worshipping yourself. If you could have kept all God's commands then you would have earned your salvation. But he says no one apart from Jesus who's been born has ever, never sinned. And even if you could, the credit would be yours. And Paul goes on to say, neither does the answer lie in just hoping for the best. See what will happen. Pretending that ignorance is bliss, that our excuse as men and women before God will be, we didn't really know. We didn't really understand. It was all a bit difficult, God. It was like you were in a fog. We didn't really know. If we would have known, we would have changed. So rather than face up to the fact that there's a creator while we're living here on earth, many people's plan is to play dumb, plead ignorance. If I do ever stand before him, that's our plans. 
Paul explains in Romans, that plan will not work. We cannot deceive God because he's the God who knows everything. We cannot fool him. We cannot ignore him. We're just deluding ourselves because he knows. He knows the reason why men and women don't want to acknowledge him is because if we acknowledged him, we'd have to bow the knee to him. We would have to take ourselves off the throne of our own lives. We would have to dethrone all those made-up gods that we've made because we like them. Because guess what? They agree with everything that we want to do. God knows that if mankind acknowledges him, we would have to bow the knee to him. And man, we will fight hard not to do that. However, quite rightly, Paul says it's the only way. He says the only way for unbelievers, it's the only way for you Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome, you've got to stop squabbling like children and sit up and listen to the verdict before it's too late. You are all equally sinners before God and you must humble yourself before him. All in exactly the same way, none of you better than anyone else in order to receive God's gift of righteousness as an undeserved gift through what Jesus did on the cross. He tells them, you've all got to do that. You've all got to do that. There's no other way. I don't care if your great, 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 great granddaddy was King David Abraham himself. You've got to get on your knees and cry out to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I don't care if you're a Roman senator with as much money and power and legions of armies behind you. You've got to get on your knees and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. That's what Paul's saying to them. So what was the result of this problem, the consequence of mankind's rebellion to God. Because Paul's talking to them, but he's also talking to everybody else in Rome as well. What was the consequence? For Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, slave free. He says, all have sinned and are not right with God and are consequently God's enemies. Romans 3, 9 to 20. What should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about everyone is born like this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. It's crucial for the Christians in Rome, crucial for us who are Christians today. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, You're not a Christian unless you've been made speechless. How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? It's you stop talking. The trouble with non-Christian is that he goes on talking, forever talking about God and criticizing God and pontificating on what God should do, shouldn't do. You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, is stopped, and you are speechless and have nothing to say. Paul's solution to the squabbling and arguing Christians in Rome was to bring them back to their salvation, to literally put them kneeling at the foot of the cross in silence before King Jesus and then to work out how they live their lives as community together from that place, from that place of kneeling and submission to the new king in town, Jesus. And it's the same for us today. 
That should be the mental picture that we have as a church as we try and live out and work out and speak out our salvation as a church. We are all kneeling together next to one another, no one better, no one worse. And this message is crucial for those who were living in Rome who weren't Christians. Just as it's crucial for those who live around us today who aren't Christians, or you here this morning if you are not a Christian. See, the purpose of the opening chapters of Romans is to convince us that everybody is by birth an enemy of God and needs to change sides quickly. That's what Paul's writing it for. Everyone is born an enemy of God. You're born on the wrong side and you need to change sides quickly. God has made a way for that change of sides to be possible through sending his son to die on the cross. But we need to accept, we need to receive that gift of salvation by bowing the knee to Jesus in order to actually change sides. The message that Paul opens with is that people need salvation. There's a new king in town and people need to surrender to this new king, not Nero, not any other king. So this message that Paul is given, it is confrontational. It declares something that demands a response one way or another. In Nero's day, you either bowed the knee to him or you lost your head. And we need to make sure that we understand and people understand that there are eternal consequences to not bowing the knee and accepting Jesus' offer of salvation. If we simply communicate the gospel as some divine pat on the back, your nice life will get nicer. You can have everything that you've had before and Jesus as well. He won't make any demands of you. He won't ask you to give up anything. You can carry on believing, acting, speaking and thinking just as you want. And if you ever get in trouble, call Jesus. He's the genie of the lamp. If that's the gospel we tell people, then we can't be surprised when people treat it as an offer they don't need for a problem they think they don't have. That's the, one of the biggest problems the church has in this country. We've so watered down the gospel, people say, no, I'll have a latte. Imagine you're on a flight and a stewardess hands you a parachute, tells you to put it on because it will make you feel like soldiers, like paratroopers, like you're in some kind of World War II movie. And they're quite persuasive, so you put it on, but quite soon you realise this parachute's uncomfy. It's not nice to sit in a chair that's tight enough already with this big parachute on. It's uncomfy for the journey. And so you ignore the steward's flattery. You take it off because it's making the journey uncomfortable. It's difficult. But now just imagine the same situation but with a different steward who follows more Paul's example of how we should tell people the gospel. As we're flying, they hand us a parachute, says the cockpit's on fire. At any moment, the plane might start falling out of the sky. So you better put the parachute on. Suddenly, we put the parachute on no matter how uncomfortable it is in that journey. We are not taking the parachute off. Because that's the only thing that might help us if a plane falls out of the sky and we've got to jump. And in chapter 3, Paul uses these many different ways to warn people about how we need salvation. He emphasizes how sin is so widespread, how it affects everyone and everything. He uses all those Old Testament phrases about lips and throats and feet and mouths and tongue. He's basically saying this, sin has infected every part of the world and every person. And he makes it clear, no one is righteous. No one is born righteous. Doesn't matter who your parents were, doesn't matter how good you think you've been, no one is righteous, no one seeks God. 
He's saying to them, we're all on a plane engulfed in flames, so you better get the parachute of salvation. And Paul tells them, you know, this has always been the case. He says the Ten Commandments, the law, thou shalt not, you know, steal, murder, blah, blah, blah. They weren't given to Moses so that mankind could construct their own self-help way to God, path to righteousness. It was supposed to be a wake-up call because the Ten Commandments describe for us what God is like and how he treats us and therefore how he expects us to treat him and others. And when people were looking at the Ten Commandments, it was supposed to make them realize, oh my goodness, I don't live up to that. They were supposed to look at it and realize how far short they'd fallen of God. And so we would humble ourselves and seek him and say, Lord, forgive us. Please help us to be more like you. The Ten Commandments were designed to silence men and women long enough to hear the steward's warning that we're guilty, that we're under God's judgment. We're in desperate need of this gospel parachute that can save us. D.L. Moody said this, the law, right, the Ten Commandments, was not given to save men and women, but to measure them. It was never meant for men to save themselves. We were never supposed to look at the Ten Commandments and say, great, I'm going to follow all those and then I'll be right before God. We were supposed to look at them and go, oh my goodness, how far short of God have I fallen? Please, Lord, forgive me and help me. The law was not given to men to save them, but to measure them. He says, I can always tell a man who's got near the kingdom of God, his mouth is stopped. You see, we can never receive God's righteousness, Jesus' gift of righteousness, until we empty ourselves of our own attempts of righteousness, until we stop saying, God, but I'm a good person. God, but I didn't murder anybody. God, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Until we stop doing all that rubbish, we will never, never get saved. So what Paul says in these first three chapters of Romans couldn't be more important. He tells us, Every problem in our nation and in our lives at root is caused by the pervading power of sin. This rebellion to God, this refusal to acknowledge him as God. We need salvation and we need it badly. And we need it desperately. And yet we don't know, and yet we, know we, 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 we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And we can't barter with God because we've got nothing to barter with. We've got nothing to offer. Even if you and I said with the best will in the world, God, I'm going to live for you, never do anything wrong this day till the rest of my life. We all know it will be a lie. We wouldn't be able to. As soon as that person cut us up, we'd be shouting at them. As soon as that temptation come, we'd be thinking about giving into it. We know. We have no, nothing to barter with. We need salvation, but we can't save ourselves. It's what Paul's saying. Men and women, mankind, will you realise you cannot save yourself. You need a saviour. You need someone who has earned salvation. They have earned salvation. Not you earned salvation. They have earned salvation. And then they are going to give it to you as a gift. That is what you need. And Paul tells the church in Rome, there is a saviour. God sent him. His name's Jesus. He's the son of God. The Romans nailed him to a cross. The Jews stirred up hatred towards him, but he paid for your salvation and God raised him from the dead. But he's the new king in town and you need to bow and surrender to him and not Nero. And if you do, he'll give you eternal life and he'll be with you always. But you need to spend the rest of your life working out your salvation with other Christians kneeling at the foot of the cross. But if you don't, one day you'll stand before him. 
you will stand before him and you'll desperately need his salvation but by then it will be too late. The fate will be sealed. Your destiny will be set. You will be like the person who just sat on the plane and did nothing while it crashed. And if that's you this morning, if you are not a Christian here, then I want to implore you to humble yourselves and to bow the knee and surrender to Jesus and make him the Lord of your life. Thank you. Thanks, Quincy.